And if you would turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 9, we are not going to read all of Nehemiah 9, it's very long, but we are going to look today at verses 1 through 15, Nehemiah 9. This is God's living and inerrant word. Now on the 24th day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting in sackcloth and with dust on their heads. Then those of Israelite lineage separated themselves from all foreigners, and they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for one-fourth of the day, and for another-fourth they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. Then Jeshua, Bani, Cadmiel, Shebaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Chenani stood on the stairs of the Levites and cried out with a loud voice to the Lord their God. And the Levites, Jeshua, Cadmiel, Bani, Hashabniah, Sherebiah, Hodijah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and everything on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve them all. The host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made a covenant with him to give the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, and the Girgashites to give it to his descendants. You have performed your words, for you are righteous. You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry by the Red Sea. You showed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his servants, and against all the people of his land, for you knew that they acted proudly against them. So you made a name for yourself as it is this day, and you divided the sea before them, so that they went through the midst of the sea on the dry land, and their persecutors you threw into the deep as a stone into the mighty waters. Moreover, you led them by day with a cloudy pillar, and by night with a pillar of fire, to give them light on the road which they should travel. You came also down also on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven, and gave them just ordinances and true laws, good statutes and commandments. You made known to them your holy Sabbath, and commanded them precepts, statutes, and laws by the hand of Moses, your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought them water out of the rock for their thirst and told them to go in to possess the land which you had sworn to give them. Let's pray. Lord God, this is your holy word and we bow before you as your people longing to know your word better and to apply it. And so, Father, we ask that you would teach us that we would learn and apply what we learn, and that you would be glorified in our hearts as we look at this passage. Thank you for your, the living word of God and for our Savior, Jesus Christ. We praise you in his name. Amen. Well, several months ago, it's been at least several months, we looked at Nehemiah chapter 4. And in Nehemiah chapter 4, we learned that it was a time to build. People had a mind to build. The Lord had given them grace. They built the wall. Uh, and it was a time to prepare, to assemble, to worship rightly. And we're talking a lot about worship today. So, and they had to have a wall. They had to have some protection so they could actually assemble and, and that, so that they could worship. 
And then in chapter 8, we saw that it was a time to worship and to hear the word of God, and uh, they rejoiced uh, to hear it, and uh, they began to keep the law as it hadn't been kept for many years. And if you recall there in chapter 8, the people gathered as one man, it said. They gathered in unity. They were zealous to hear the word of God. Um, they were, um, and they told Ezra, in fact, bring the word. We want to hear it. And it says they were very attentive uh, to the word of God. They had a mind together to hear the book of the law. And they had a time to rejoice as they heard that at that time and in this week of worship. And they began rejoicing, and they began to understand, and they began to keep the law of God. And uh, then it said, though, all the people wept when they heard the words of the law, the proper response. They realized how greatly they had broken his law. And they wept. They wept for themselves. They wept for the, the, the history of disobedience. And so while they rejoiced in hearing and understanding the word, they were grieved at their disobedience. And so the people wept. And they, they would have continued in this grief, uh, at that time in the worship week, uh, but the leaders and Levites told them that this was not uh, a time to mourn. There w would be a time to mourn. And they were told not to sorrow. They were told not to grieve, uh, but that the joy of the Lord would be their strength. Uh, they uh, needed to go forward in that strength now because they were uh, uh, told this is not the time to, to weep. So they held the Feast of Booths. If you remember, that's a very joyful time. It's a time of feasting. And they rejoiced greatly because they had understood the word of God, and they were obeying the word of God. And now here in chapter 9, they are continuing this week of worship. And uh, now this is actually a time to mourn. It's a time for fasting and not for feasting. And so they rejoiced greatly because they understood the word, and they were ready to uh, now go forward to uh, renew worship. This is a time of renewing understanding again. Well, what does it mean to rightly worship the living God in the way that he has called them to do? And uh, a time again to obey the law. So we're looking today at the first part of this long prayer. Uh, most of the commentaries I looked at said this is the longest prayer in the Bible. So we are not going to go through all of it today. And we're going through 15 verses, which is 30 or 40% of this psalm. And it focuses on adoration today. And we will be looking in the next, uh, in the next two Sundays at other elements of worship in, in prayer, uh, and of some patterns, patterns of confession and repentance by the people of God, and patterns, uh, continual patterns of God's mercy and covenant love to them. And uh, in this prayer, we see the people of God confessing. Uh, it's a prayer of confession, often it's labeled that, um, and a time of renewal. They are re being renewed in the covenant that they have broken, being renewed in right worship. Now, you may have heard from a number of sources, but from us also, that we have a, a covenant renewal worship. That's what we call it. And uh, we refer to it that way. Uh, that's a, a way of developing a liturgy. We, in fact, every Lord's Day are being renewed in the covenant. We're being reminded again, this is the covenant that God has made. And we confess because we fail at keeping it. And God, again, showers his grace upon us. So um, sometimes we use that here. But We've uh, learned, I think, that that term has come to mean other things to other people that we're not sure uh, is uh, what we would uh, want to practice. And so it's probably better to clarify it and call uh, our style of worship, if you will, covenant renewal worship, here uh, as the consistent practice of the regulative principle of worship. 
the consistent practice of the regulative principle. The regulative principle, which I'm sure you all have heard at some point here, is a biblical guide for worship. And it basically says, we may only worship God in the way he has commanded in the Bible, and if it is not commanded, it is forbidden. Certainly the Lord would give us guidance in his word as to how to worship him, which is the most important thing we do. We were made to worship him individually and corporately. So yes, he has made it clear in the scriptures. And we are to worship him as he desires, not as we desire. Our God is holy. Our God is jealous to be worshipped in the way that he is meant to be worshipped and he has commanded us to be worshipped. And his glory, he said, he will share with no other. The people of Israel were delivered from bondage in Egypt so that they could worship Jehovah according to the word. That's what it said. They wanted to worship according to the word. He asked Pharaoh to let them go, just as we have been redeemed to worship him according to his word. Two key verses, Deuteronomy 4, verse 2. These are both from Deuteronomy. Chapter 4, verse 2 says, You shall not add to the word which I command you, nor take from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. And then later on in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 31 and 32, you shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. Now that way was the way the pagans were worshiping their pagan gods. Do not worship them in any way, that way. And he went on, whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it, nor take away from it. He's making clear that uh, we, we must not add to the word of God. We must keep it pure. And we must not take away anything from it in our worship. We must keep it entire. We should look at all of the scripture. The um, catechism, or the confession in chapter 21, and the title is On Worship. It says, the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself, and so limited by his own revealed will, that he may not be worshiped according to the imaginations and devices of men, or the suggestions of Satan, under any visible representation, or any other way not prescribed in Holy Scripture. So each Lord's Day, we are being renewed. Praise God, we can come together, we can be renewed as we worship rightly, we desire to worship rightly, meaning biblically. And that is only because the Lord has made a covenant with us, a covenant of grace, and we are reminded of it on each Lord's Day. May we not ever compromise in worshiping him as he has commanded or allow anything in our worship that he has not commanded. So we are seeing in this prayer, in the beginning of this prayer, uh, in, in all of the prayer, actually parts of worship and an example of what worship looks like uh, in, in our worship of him that, uh, that we would be renewed in proper worship. Uh, this is what worship looks like when people are seeking the renewal of proper worship. Renewed worship only happens when the word of God is read and learned and applied. And we will also see that sin must be confessed. Before we begin looking at the specifics of uh, verses 1 through 15, though, I'd like to stand back just a bit and think about what are the elements of biblical worship? What are the elements that please the Lord, that honor him, and uh, that are done in obedience to his word? In the book, How God Wants Us to Worship Him, Joe Moorcraft, uh, the, the subtitle is A Defense of the Bible as the Only Standard for Modern Worship. It's a wonderful book. I would highly recommend looking at that. So Joe Moorcraft, uh, he has a chapter in there on the necessary elements of worship. 
with uh, scriptures showing that these elements are to be kept because they are, first of all, clearly commanded in the word or they are approved by examples in the word. We are looking at an example in the word here or by necessary inference uh, in or from the word of God. We live and we worship by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So here's the list. First of all, at the top of the list, he put praying, praying, according to Acts, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. And we'll be seeing all of these in this chapter, but uh, today we are focusing on adoration. And then reading of the word of God, Nehemiah chapter 8, I mentioned before, Ezra opened the scriptures, it said, and he read to the people. They longed to hear him. Uh, preaching the word is next, Nehemiah 8 again. Uh, the leaders and the Levites, it said, read distinctly from the book in the law of God, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. That was their job. To, uh, that's the purpose of the preaching of the word, uh, to give the sense, to help uh, us all grow in understanding uh, God's word. Administration of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, singing of praises to God with musical instruments and with songs, hymns, and spiritual songs, giving of tithes, or, or giving, uh, taking oaths and vows, confessing. Now, in this case, confessing means declaring our faith. We are affirming our faith together. We are testifying of it in our readings and in, in creeds when we read those. Pronouncing a benediction, exercising church discipline, and uh, saying a congregational amen. This is the only one that uh, I, I noted that I would not have listed. Uh, but I can understand it. Nehemiah 8.6 says, And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, that all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. So there's a, a congregational Amen. And then scheduling special days of Thanksgiving, and it ends with fasting. And with that, let's focus on how the people here are being renewed in the right worship of the living God. In uh, Nehemiah chapter 8, the people were told, again, not to mourn, not to weep. Uh, so... and. Two days later, after a joyful feast, two days later, uh, they had the Feast of Booths, but th then they are now here setting aside a time to mourn for sin and a time to confess their disobedience. It's a time to recall who their God is and what he has done and how far they have fallen short. So their relationship with the Lord God was being renewed here, and thus they were learning again how to rightly and reverently worship the Lord together. Verse 1 says, now on the 24th day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled. They gathered again with fasting in sackcloth and with dust on their heads. And then those, Israel, those of Israelite lineage separated themselves or were separated from uh, the, the foreigners. And they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for one-fourth of the day. For another-fourth they confessed and worshiped the Lord their God. So first of all, they assembled. They wanted to assemble. They gathered together uh, as they were called to do. And they had done this previously in the week several times, willingly. They did it with one heart and one mind. And they showed here uh, in words and in actions. These actions we'll talk about. Uh, their contrition and their grief at the severity of their sin. And they had prepared themselves to pray, to worship. They'd prepared First of all, they wore sackcloth. Sackcloth is something, from what I read and studied, it must be extremely uncomfortable. I suppose some men would feel that the modern equivalent is having to wear a tie. But I believe this is a lot worse 
than that. This is a lot worse because it was made of coarse goat hair. I guess it was usually black, so it wasn't even beautiful probably. It wasn't meant to be, and it probably didn't smell that good. And so it was not nice-looking clothing. So I went on Amazon because I was curious. I thought, well, the, I guess they say now it's burlap is kind of the equivalent of that now. And I can't imagine wearing burlap either. But turns out, believe it on Amazon, you can buy anything. They had burlap clothing. I couldn't believe it. And they had burlap curtains. And well, anyway, that, I was really surprised. But also on Amazon, there's a music CD. And I don't know who the group was. Uh, I forgot. But uh, the title of the CD was Sackcloth Fashion. That's the title, sackcloth fashion. Subtitle, something for everyone to hate. <laughs> and so, okay, sackcloth back then was put on because it was terrible to wear. It was an outward showing of their spiritual poverty. It was an outward indication of the severity, uh, their feeling uh, of grief and sorrow for their sin. It was a public humbling of themselves. It was humiliating to wear this. And then it says they put dust or they put earth <clears throat> on their heads. Sometimes it was ashes. And they sat, sometimes they even sat in the ashes also. Now this is in contrast to oil. You know what you hear about oil, it's, if it's poured on your head and flowing down your beard, it's a wonderful thing. Uh, this is in contrast to that. So they cast dirt on their heads to show, in a sense, the filth of their actions and to bear their shame. It was shameful. So they were here showing in those two ways uh, outwardly and physically, that they were unworthy to come before the holy God whom they had <clears throat> disobeyed. And they were confessing in order to be renewed. They wanted to be renewed in right worship and to be able to worship the living God who had made this amazing covenant with them. Now, we don't wear sackcloth now. And we don't throw dirt on our heads. Although I got to thinking my kids used to do that. It was mostly sand. I don't know why they, they did that. But we don't do that anymore. But we do fast. We do believe in fasting. And uh, fasting is a discipline of worship that is still part of what we should be practicing uh, individually and, and corporately. Now fasting, as I mentioned, it's a spiritual discipline which we can practice more. We should practice more, especially as we confess and as we repent as they were. In the book, uh, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life, it's all on your shelf somewhere, uh, Don Whitney in his chapter called Fasting for the Purpose of Godliness. Fasting for the purpose of godliness. He said, Our Lord is always pleased to hear the prayers of his people, but he is also pleased when we choose to enhance our prayer in a way he himself has ordained. So it's commanded, actually. Uh, it's a way that often when we pray, we should, we should fast. And he lists 10 purposes in Scripture for fasting, but he notes that uh, really uh, most of them, are, uh, most of the uh, purposes are uh, related to prayer, and that's the most common purpose for fasting, and it's the most emphasized in Scripture. Arthur Wallace, in a book called The Lord's Chosen Fast, uh, wrote, in giving us the privilege of fasting as well as praying, or connected with praying, God has added a powerful weapon to our spiritual armory. In her folly and ignorance, the church has largely looked upon it as obsolete. Your elders do not believe it's obsolete. I know many of you fast regularly. You know that it is a discipline of grace that God has called us to at times uh, as we pray. And we have not often called for or suggested a, a corporate time of fasting. Uh, maybe we did so on the National Day of Prayer. I don't remember that. Uh, but again, um, this is a time to pour out our hearts to the Lord. 
And of course, some people aren't able to fast, or they can't at certain times. But it is in the Bible. It is something we can still practice and should um, do, I think. And I think that this discipline and that power uh, in prayer and that humility that comes from prayer and fasting is going to be necessary if the right worship of the living God is to be restored in this land. And necessary for us, really, as we go forward to continue the right worship of the living God as he is commanded. And as we battle the forces of the enemy and also our own sinfulness, in that battle, it's important for us to fast and pray. Nehemiah, in fact, began all this restoration process that began um, in chapter one, uh, the restoration of the wall also, and then now we're looking at the restoration of worship. He, He began it all. Uh, and probably continued it by personally fasting and personally confessing his own sin and the sin of his people. In Nehemiah chapter 1, he said, uh, and they said to me, he sent a delegation, they came back from Jerusalem, and they told him the the state of the the condition there, and it was terrible. And uh, they said to him, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. So he heard this and it says, so it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. He was very grieved at the situation of the people, of the remnant of God there and the consequences, he knew it was the consequences of their own sin And so he fasted and he prayed. And I'd like to read some of what he prayed. And I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments, please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night, for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which... We have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember, I pray, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though some of you were cast out to the farthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as as a dwelling for my name. So that's an inspired example. That wasn't the whole prayer that he prayed, but it's an inspired example of a prayer of confession that was accompanied with fasting at a time that he was crying out to God. Another inspired example is in Daniel 9. It has some, a lot of similarities, actually, with this prayer. But when I am seeking to confess rightly, I usually go to one of two psalms, Psalm 51 or Psalm 32. And I pray through it because I need help to know how to confess rightly. Later on in Joel chapter 2, the Lord told his people, Now, therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abundant in kindness. That last phrase is scattered through scriptures. Praise God that he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, 
great in kindness. But it says in the beginning, turn to me with all your heart. They were seeking to do that. They were seeking to turn to him and return to proper worship. He said, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. And then it says, so rend your heart. There's a whole difference between rending their garments. They could do that. Some of them did that. It was also a sign of, of grief for sin. But he was saying, rend your heart. And then it goes on, consecrate a fast. That means set aside. Set aside a time to fast. Call a sacred assembly. Gather the people. Sanctify the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children and nursing babes. It includes everyone. So we should consider, again, brothers and sisters, the blessing of fasting in our prayer life and in this congregation and rend our hearts before the Lord because he is merciful. Well, verse 2 says that then they separated themselves from those of foreign lineage. So again, you have to remember, they're coming here to understand again, rightly worshiping the God. They were coming to worship God as his people, to confess and be renewed uh, without the influence of those whom they were already commanded not to marry and to worship with. So those outside of Israel from foreign countries, and there were many mixed in there at that time, could not be expected to really be a part of or be included in this time of confession for the collective sins of Israel, being confessed. that they, they, We will see in the next two weeks they're confessing uh, for sins uh, of their people. Now Ezra had begun this process earlier. Uh, he had tried to stop the marriage uh, to pagans, uh, pagan wives and husbands, but the people didn't fully comply at that point. So here they are again. And then uh, in chapter 13, which is the final book of a chapter of Nehemiah. Nehemiah says, In those days I also saw Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Those are the very people in chapter 4 who were trying to kill them and stop them from building the wall. They'd intermarried. And it says, Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod and could not speak the language of Judah, but spoke according to the language of one of the other people. They couldn't even understand the word of God. They couldn't worship rightly. And so Nehemiah, this is what Nehemiah said. So I contended with them and cursed them, struck some of them and pulled out their hair and made them swear by God saying, you shall not give your daughters as wives to their sons nor take their daughters for your sons or yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? Yet among many nations, there was no king like him who was beloved of his God and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, pagan women caused him, even him, to sin. Should we then hear of your doing all this great evil, transgressing against our God by marrying pagan women? So Nehemiah was quite upset. In fact, you would say he was angry. Ezra also was in Ezra chapter 9. But Ezra didn't pull out their hair, he pulled out his own hair. It's a little different, but it was still a time of grieving. Um, now, your elders have never thought of this form of discipline, I think, uh, pulling out hair. Uh, and yet, I would say, when I look at how he reacted, I would say we too are grieved at the cost of sin in the lives here and of families here, of ourselves. And we are grieved at the cost of that to each other. And so we want us all to grow in a conviction of sin and, and in prompt confession, prompt confession, heartfelt, the kind that we're rending our hearts in confession as, as a part of our worship. Now, this prayer in chapter 9 is primarily 
I mentioned a prayer of confession. Uh, it begins with adoration, which is what we're going to look at in just a minute. And it also has uh, parts of thanksgiving in it, has supplication in it also. But it's a time to remember their sin and a time to confess their willful and repeated turning from the Lord, their ungratefulness for his great blessings to them. Now, I'm not sure any of us really know well how to confess. I will say of myself, I don't know well enough how to confess. I think we don't even know words of confession well, how to express this to the living God whom we have disobeyed. It's not natural to us. We're full of pride. We don't do this very well. And certainly not a part of our culture. We don't see a lot of good examples in public, confessing to God especially. Romans 8 tells us that the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. And I think in many ways, in terms of, the, of confession, we don't know how to pray as we ought. And I believe this is especially true in our personal con confession of sin and possibly of our corporate confession. May the Spirit enable us to pray as we ought in our confession. And I'm thankful for the prayers of confession that we hear, that the men write. They're a great blessing to me personally. It helps me to do so in this body as we pray each week, as we confess. Now we should begin, generally we should begin prayer with adoration, I believe. And there are many uh, parts in Scripture that show that, even the Lord's Prayer. So we begin with adoration. And we always are giving thanks, true. And we're always, uh, Lord always wants us to be willing to bring our supplications to him and submit to his will. But I think regular heartfelt confession uh, can often be minimized. And may we have here a spirit of humility and a spirit of contrition that we might rightly confess and worship the Lord as he has made known to us. Now I've mentioned recently, I believe, that I've been going through uh, the valley of vision. And I believe most of you at least have one of these in your family. This also has greatly helped me to learn what it means to confess rightly. And there's a section in here. It's one of the largest sections, in fact, and it's called Penitence and Self-Deprecation. You know, to me, people would read that for joyful reading at night. Self-deprecation, we don't even like hearing that term. Penitence. So as I go through this section... I have been greatly blessed. It is helping me to know how to say what I don't say very well. How to understand my own folly and my own rebellion and then say it to the Lord God who loves me, to a holy God. Praying these prayers of godly men in their humility has moved me um, to say more correctly, more rightly what I truly need to say. I'd like to read a short one. This is, this is called Yet... I sin. So Y-E-T, yet I sin. Eternal Father, you are good beyond all thought, but I am vile, wretched, miserable, blind. My lips are ready to confess, but my heart is slow to feel, and my ways reluctant to amend. I bring my soul to you. Break it. Wound it, bend it, mold it. Unmask to me sin's deformity, that I may hate it, abhor it, flee from it. My faculties have been a weapon of revolt against you, 
As a rebel, I have misused my strength and served the foul adversary of your kingdom. Give me grace to bewail my insensate folly. Grant me to know that the way of transgressors is hard, that evil paths are wretched paths, that to depart from you is to lose all good. I have seen the purity and beauty of your perfect law, the happiness of those in whose heart it reigns, the calm dignity of the walk to which it calls, yet I daily violate and contemn its precepts. Thy loving spirit strives within me, brings me scripture warnings, speaks in startling providences, allures by secret whispers. Yet I choose devices and desires to my own hurt, impiously resent, grieve, and provoke him to abandon me. All these sins I mourn, lament, and for them cry, pardon. Work in me more profound and abiding repentance. Give me the fullness of a godly grief that trembles and fears, yet ever trusts and loves, which is ever powerful and ever confident. Grant that through the tears of repentance, I may see more clearly the brightness and glories of the saving cross. Well, moving on, in verse 2, it says that they stood and they confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. There are times that the people of God we see throughout Scripture, they have bowed down or they've even laid prostrate or they have knelt, uh, but here they were standing during this time, or at least part of the time. Our regular confession time here um, is, I guess, relatively brief, but certainly very, very important as a part of our right and regulative principle of worship. It's, and it should be led by the Spirit, and it's best prepared for throughout the week, really. Um, it should not be seen ever as just a small part of worship uh, before coming to the table of the Lord. It's an extremely important part of our worship. It should be a reminder to us of the mercy of God and our need for further sanctification, which I am seeing in my own life tends to advance in bigger steps as I go through hard times, as I go through painful times. Sanctification advances, I believe, as we confess our rebellion and how we have broken the law of God, and then as we repent. Verse three says, and they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for one-fourth of the day. In other words, three hours, a day is 12 hours. And as always, in a time of renewing the covenant uh, that they had broken, they read from the word. We always have to read from the word to come back to understand the covenant. And they were standing in respect of the law. They reminded themselves here, again, of the standard of the covenant of which they had broken and how far short they had fallen. And then verse 3 continues, for another fourth of the day, another three hours, they confessed and worshiped the Lord their God. Now the word confess means more than admitting sin. It does mean that. But it also means to acknowledge or to affirm or to just tell the truth. That also means confess. We also use that in that way. They are confessing their sin and they're also confessing and affirming their faith in the living and true God. So this chapter really is a brief summary of Israel's history of turning from the Lord again and again and from God's kindness and mercy in showing his covenant love to them again and again. Uh, but they began here in uh, these verses, 4 through 15. They're gathered to worship, and they want to think about who is the God of the covenant. 
They're reminding themselves, who is the God of the covenant? By beginning with adoration. So all this we're going to look at from now on, from verse 4 to 15, relates to adoration. And most of our prayers should begin, as I mentioned, that way. Praising him for who he is, for what he has done. So this prayer is leading toward a renewed covenant. If you looked at ahead at verse 38, it says, because of all this, we make a sure covenant and write it. And so they wrote down, in their own words, and that's in the chapter 10, uh, they made a sure covenant. Lord, we are going to follow through on this. And by the way, the word worship is from an old English word. I can't remember exactly what that was, but uh, and, and it means worth. So in worship, worship is basically, and prayer is basically, proclaiming his worth, prayers of adoration. So what worship is. We are proclaiming and adoring him. So verse, from verses 4 to 15, they began to remember and to praise the, uh, God for who he is. Specifically, if you look on the notes, Specifically, he is their exalted Lord and creator. He is their covenant maker. He is their deliverer. And he is their lawgiver and their provider. Now, you might consider using that as a pattern uh, and these specific names uh, for your time uh, of adoration of the Lord sometime. It's inspired, it's given in the word. Now, after lunch today, as Phil mentioned, we'd like to have a time of corporate prayer. And practice this pattern by praying briefly over each of these attributes, these names of God. So you might want to jot down a few thoughts if they come to you as I go now rapidly through the rest of this uh, prayer. And jot, jot some thoughts down that might help you to pray. We are going to pray and adore our Lord together. We are called to do that as a congregation. And then if you can remember, bring that sheet with you. When you go to the table, I know that's not always easy. So they began verses four through six. First of all, they are adoring the Lord God Jehovah as their exalted Lord and creator. Verses four through six, it says, then these eight leaders stood on the stairs of the Levites and they cried out with a loud voice to the Lord their God. So they wanted everybody to hear. And it says, and the Levites, eight, eight Levites, began by telling the people to bless the Lord with them. So they're leading and we do the same each week. As elders, we bless you, and then we uh, pray a prayer of invocation uh, with everyone standing, asking the Lord to help us to praise him, to bless him, to praise his glorious name. And they, uh, they, they said this. They said, stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever. So the people stood up, and uh, so they began praying this prayer, which was probably uh, written by Ezra uh, with a blessing to the Lord, for, to his glorious name with their hands raised. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. That's how they began their worship. And we have said say this verse also a number of times in a year in our covenant promises, as we are standing also and blessing the Lord. And they acknowledge that he alone is the Lord. There is no other God. And he is the Lord of creation, of all creation. It says, you alone are the Lord. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens with all their host." the earth and everything on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve them. The host of heaven worships you. So the Apostles' Creed begins, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. People all around the world start uh, admitting, confessing what they believe by saying, he is the maker of heaven and earth. And we should often do that. Now we need to recall also that our God made the heaven of heavens, the universe, the stars, the sun, the moon, and the earth and everything on it. He made the seas, made all the teeming life in them, and he preserves it all. 
Hebrews 1 tells us that he made the worlds through his son and he upholds all things by the word of his power. He created it all. He formed it all for his glory. He created us for his glory. He formed us as his people then to care for his creation and now to redeem it with him. And all the hosts of heaven worship him. And then it continues, verses 7 and 8, by remembering the Lord as their covenant maker. He is our covenant maker also. And he said, you are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made a covenant with him to give the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, and the Gergesites, to give it to his descendants. You have performed your words, for you are righteous. So he chose Abram and made a covenant with him, as he chose us and made a covenant with us through the blood of the Lamb. And we should daily praise him for choosing us at all and calling us to be his own. And he gave Abraham a new name, the father of many nations. And he called Abraham to go from a place that he'd known, where he grew up, to a new land, a land meant for his descendants. And brothers and sisters, he has given us a new name. Revelation 3, this is to those who overcome, those who are in the Lord. He said, I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. Brothers and sisters, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own special people. And then he went on, the people went on to praise him as their deliverer, verses 9 through 12. Well, I'm sorry, just, uh, I'd like to mention one more thing. He has made us his people. He has given us a new name. And he has called us to take dominion now of the earth. He has prepared for us a land for our descendants. And he's prepared for us an eternal home. As he performed his promise, his covenant oath to Abraham, so he will, so he is fulfilling his covenant to his people now in Jesus Christ because he is righteous. And now moving on, verses 9 through 12. You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry by the Red Sea. You showed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his servants, and against all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted proudly against them. So you made a name for yourself as it is this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on the dry land. And their persecutors you threw into the deep as a stone into mighty waters. Moreover, you led them by day with a cloudy pillar and by night with a pillar of fire to give them, give them light on the road which they should travel. So the Lord God saw the affliction of his own people. He saw their bondage and by his mighty power he delivered them from those who proudly acted against his people. God opposes the proud and he made a name for himself. He revealed his great power and his might on behalf of his people. He showed them the way that they were to go and he protected them along that way uh, to the promised land with the two pillars. And our Lord, brothers and sisters, has seen our affliction due to sin. He enabled us to cry out to him, and he heard us, and he delivered us through the cross, and is delivering us from our enemies and from the burden and the bondage of our own sin. He's revealing his name, his mighty name, his power through us. And his power is shown in weakness. He is showing us the way that we should go, his word is still a lamp to our feet and a light to our path like the pillar of fire. And he's given us his spirit as our guide. Finally, in verses 13 through 15, they praised the Lord. They remembered the Lord as their lawgiver and as their provider. 
You came down also on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them just ordinances and true laws, good statutes and commandments. You have made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them precepts, statutes, and laws by the hand of Moses, your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought them water out of the rock for their thirst and told them to go in to possess the land which you had sworn to give them. So he spoke his word from heaven to Moses on Mount Sinai. And all his word is just and true. His word and his commandments are good and they are not burdensome for his own people. And he gave one day and seven as a rest, praise God, to prepare us for our eternal Sabbath in the Lord Jesus and to teach us to worship him. And he gave us his perfect law of liberty, pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ, in the Lord Jesus. May we delight in his law. And then he provided the food and the water that they needed to go on this way that he commanded in miraculous ways. He gave them bread, manna from heaven. He gave them water from a rock. And he provides for us too in amazing ways. I think we often do not praise him for. He, he reminds us each week, in fact, of, of his eternal provision. And he nourishes us in grace uh, in the table of our Lord. And then he commanded that Israel possess the land. He's, I'm making the way you go in and possess what I've called you to take, which he in his mercy had promised them. And he commands us to also make disciples of all nations. He has given us all nations in his son. And we're to claim the nations in his name. We're to claim the nations for our King Jesus. Well, I hope that helps us in our prayer time after lunch as we adore the Lord our God. He is our exalted creator. He is the one who has made with us a loving covenant. He has delivered us from bondage. He's delivered us from slavery to sin. He has given us his perfect law to guide us, and he has graciously provided everything we need in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, you are worthy of all praise, and we, as your people, desire to worship you as you have so graciously taught us in your word and we want to more and more delight in adoring you. Enable us to do that together today. We want to exalt your holy name. We praise you as our creator, and we submit to you. We give thanks for your covenant of grace through our Lord Jesus Christ, and that in him we have been delivered from the dominion and penalty of our sin. And we rejoice in your law and for all your merciful and abundant provision for us. We bless your glorious name, O Lord. And we ask that you would fill us with your spirit now, that we might glorify your name more and more as we worship you. And we pray all these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.